It really gives me great pleasure to introduce tonight's speaker, Professor uh, Valerie Bunce. Uh, professor Bunce is a professor of international studies and a government at Cornell uh, University. Uh, her research interests and teaching uh, focus on comparative democratization and international democracy promotion mainly by the United States, in particular in the last uh, 20 years or so, and inter-ethnic cooperation and conflict. Her most recent book is called Subversive Institutions, The Design and the Collapse of Socialism and the State. It was published by Cambridge University Press in 1999, uh, even though now she's working on, on another book. Uh, it's done. It's, it's done. It's, uh, Val has published uh, in many uh, top journals, I don't need to mention, I mean, including comparative politics, uh, American uh, Political Science Review, and international organization. Really, in, in many I can mention, in particular, she, she, she has done uh, several articles with top also area studies, uh, magazines and journals uh, and scholars. Uh, and I think uh, uh, the reason why we, we, we are delighted to have Val here last year uh, at the LSE, we organized a year-long uh, series of events on the Arab uprisings. And we wanted to have a comparatist basically really contextualize the Arab uprisings within the international waves, uh, protests and revolts in various regions of the world. And I was talking to my friend, uh, John Seidel, I said, we need a person who's not really a specialist on the Middle East. And he said, well, you must invite uh, Valerie Bounce. Uh, uh, because I think uh, Valerie, and I'm not exaggerating, she's one of the few uh, comparatives, political scientists uh, who basically, not only a specialist on Eastern Europe and, and Russia, but basically navigates the complexity of politics in many regions and has the theoretical tools uh, to make sense uh, of these uh, waves, international waves, revolts, and protests in the international system. Uh, Val is going to speak on rethinking diffusion, 1989, the color revolutions and the Arab uprisings. Uh, she'll speak for about 40 minutes or so, and then we'll open the session for questions and answers. Please join me in welcoming Val to LSC. Um, thanks, thanks so much for your, for your introduction, for the invitation. Um, what I'd like to do tonight um, is to present really three sets of generalizations about the cross-national diffusion of popular challenges to authoritarian rulers. And these generalizations are, are based upon comparisons I've been doing um, among three such waves. Okay, the first two I actually know a fair amount about having done field work on them. The first one is the collapse of communism and the wave of protests in Eastern Europe uh, that really began in 1987 and ended in 1989. We usually think of that as 1989. Um, the second is um, the color revolutions, um, which for those of you who don't know, was a series of challenges by opposition parties uh, to purportedly secure authoritarian rulers in a group of countries in post-communist Europe and Eurasia. And this was a, a process that began in Slovakia in 1998, in all these cases you had these weird regimes that were purportedly democratic, 
but run by authoritarian leaders on a very uneven political playing field, such that the authoritarian leaders kept winning the elections even if they didn't have votes, sometimes stealing the elections, for example. Um, and it, suddenly there were a series of these elections in which the authoritarian incumbents started losing, um, which was unthinkable. And that's what we refer to as the color revolutions. The process starts in Slovakia, it moved to Croatia, then Serbia, uh, then Georgia, Ukraine, and Kyrgyzstan. Um, and it went from roughly 1998 to 2005. You might have remembered uh, December of last year where there was a certain set of protests in Russia as well around elections where they were trying to use at least some of that mob uh, for trying to challenge authoritarian rulers. The third one, the third wave I'm interested in, is the Arab uprisings. And, and here I've been trying desperately to learn as much as I can, as quickly as I can, um, in order to draw out the comparison among these three waves. And I think such a comparison makes a lot of sense um, for two reasons. One is that the typical person who analyzes diffusion looks at one wave um, and then tries to draw some conclusions about various aspects of why you get the march of these kinds of innovations across state boundaries, which is really what diffusion means. Uh, so three is better than one. Uh, if we're going to try to understand how they work. But the second issue is that these three waves are actually very well set up to help us understand cross-national diffusion. There's no question that all three were about diffusion. Um, that is to say, the movement again of some new way of doing things across state boundaries very rapidly. Um, but at the same time, there were very different waves. And I'll be talking about that a bit more, but obviously it took place in different places at different times. But they also involve very different ways of challenging authoritarian rulers. They all took place in authoritarian regimes. They all involved higher levels of popular engagement in politics. But the way it played out was very different in these three ways. And, and so what we have here is a similar process, that is to say diffusion. Um, but we have very different details. And, and I think that makes for some interesting um, generalizations. Um, let me begin by defining diffusion um, and saying that I understand it to be a process in which an innovative idea, product, policy, institution, or in the cases we're interested in, repertoire of public behavior, spreads from one site or one country to others. So the central questions in diffusion, which will serve as the organizational device for my generalizations, is first of all, what is the innovation? What is the thing that's different and being done differently that's traveling across these state boundaries? The second is, why does it travel? One of the problems in diffusion research, maybe we can follow this up in the question and answer period, is that people tend to study waves that happen, not waves that don't happen. Um, for example, you can have um, uprisings in Egypt in the 1970s. They don't spread to other places. In other cases, they do. And so what's interesting about waves is their ability to spread to new places um, with similar kinds of repertoires. So we're interested in the innovation. We're interested in why does it travel? Because that is the exception, not the rule. And the third thing we're interested in is the patterns that we see once it's traveled. Um, some waves take whole regions. The more common situation is that waves, in fact, are very sketchy, spotty, patchy. Some places join, some places don't. Um, 
Sometimes uprisings are successful, authoritarian leaders lead, sometimes not. And so diffusion is always a very patchy process, and I'll be discussing that issue as well. So let me turn first to the innovation, um, again using these three waves. And here what I'm interested in is the strategies that ordinary citizens use to try to remove authoritarian leaders from office. So unlike many studies of diffusion, I'm interested in the strategies, not the outcomes. In other words, I'm not talking about the movement of um, democracy across state boundaries. I'm talking about strategies citizens use to challenge authoritarian leaders. Um, so once we focus on this question, what's really striking, and I put up a, a kind of crude table here that might help you as I work through my discussion, um, and, and that is that um, um, what we find, in fact, if we combine all these ways, are four different ways that people have mobilized to try to challenge authoritarian rules. The first one, which is the one I'll just, I, is, is obviously protest, is the one for those who are interested in the Arab uprisings, it's the most obvious one. That's also the one you see in parts of 1989. The next one, though, the next three are not so familiar if you're only interested in the Arab uprisings, but they bring in the other cases nicely. Another one is, um, let's go down to the other quadrant here, the election. And then a third one is using elections and protests, and the fourth one is using roundtables. Now, let me just say a few words about each of those, and then I'm going to talk about the variables that I think produces these different kinds of challenges. Okay, the protest one, um, you see in the Middle East and North Africa for the Arab uprisings. You also see it um, in parts of the collapse of communism, but only beginning with East Germany. You do not see it in the earlier cases. Um, and so it's mass protests as the way to challenge authoritarian rules. Going down to the next one, round tables. Here you see this in Poland and Hungary and Slovenia, 1989, where in fact the challenge to authoritarian rulers is you sit down at a table and bargain your way out of communism. And you come up with new rules of the game in order to do that. The third one here, elections, is what you see in most of the colored revolutions. And that is that you use elections in order to challenge authoritarian rulers. The idea is that you can convert an election that you couldn't possibly win into one that you actually win. Um, and to do that, you develop and apply a very sophisticated electoral model that sounds very familiar to those of us in democracies but have not been tried before in these countries. Voter registration, turnout, election monitoring, a whole bunch of different ploys to make it harder for elections to be stolen, to bring in new voters that will vote for the opposition, um, and to also just make it really hard because of election monitors for the authoritarian comes to steal the election. The fourth one, and that's the one you see, if you, get, if you take that election one, that is, for example, in the colored revolutions, Slovakia, Croatia. However, if you get to the first quadrant, election and protest, then you see also the colored revolutions, a situation whereby you can't just win the election because the guy won't leave power. Um, and so what you have to do is then mount large-scale post-election protests. Um, and force that person who lost the election to actually admit defeat and leave power. 
So are you with me? So, so there's basically a kind of very different approaches. And the question, it, the interesting question for me is why do you get these different approaches? Why, for example, don't you find in Egypt, or for that matter, Tunisia, the election model? And in fact, there was an attempt in Egypt, of course, to try to use that election model, but it didn't work. And so what I argue here is that how citizens challenge authoritarian rulers depends, in fact, on two variables. The first variable is what kind of authoritarian regime it is. And the contrast here uh, is between competitive and non-competitive. And here's the point. There are basically two types of authoritarian regimes in the world. Those that pretend to be democratic and those that don't. The ones that pretend to be democratic hold regular elections. Not usually on an even playing field, but they hold regular competitive national elections. Um, examples would be um, Serbia and some other cases. Now, it gets a little tricky when you get to like the Egyptian case and sometimes also with Tunisia. Because I define competitive as a situation in which there is some opportunity for oppositions to actually win national elections. I think it's fair to argue that even though Egypt and Tunisia had competitive elections, they were not really. There was no opportunity for oppositions to possibly win. Um, if you look at vote margins, you can also see that, that some countries that hold these so-called competitive elections uh, Uzbekistan's my favorite. And I know the first idea that occurred to you, I'm sure, was Uzbekistan as well. But Uzbekistan has at least five or six parties every national election. All of them, in fact, despite their names, support the same person, which is to say the long-serving head of Uzbekistan. They're fake parties. They're not real parties. So that, I, can, I, I would say, is a non-competitive, even though it, quote, looks competitive in that sense. So the first distinction is that, and, and, and as you can see from the table, when you have a competitive authoritarian regime, oppositions choose elections. Because there's a chance, and it has a kind of an ideal set of opportunities to actually try to win power. So they focus on elections. If you don't have competitive elections, this is your menu of choice, protests and roundtables. The second variable is how impressive the regime is. And what's interesting is that how repressive the regime is does not go along with how competitive it is, in fact. Those are separate variables. And so what happens is that in regimes that are very repressive, the choices really are elections and protests if it's competitive or protest. If they're less repressive, the choices are elections or roundtables. Let me say a word about roundtables because they're, they're very unusual circumstances. Um, you get a roundtable approach where opposition and regimes sit down together in liberalized authoritarian systems that do not hold competitive elections. And you see that um, the Spanish case is another interesting one, um, and, and the transition away from Francoism. You, what you find is that you have in those situations a regime that as is in fact has liberals or reformers within it. Usually they're hardliners and reformers within that kind of regime. At the same time, the opposition has connections to the regime. The opposition also is very experienced and very sophisticated because it's been operating in a relatively liberal atmosphere. It's not unusual to see a member of the opposition also be in the regime. 
in these circumstances. So what I'm saying is that you get roundtables when there's a pretty structured politics where you've got regime and opposition and they talk to each other and they have repeated interactions with each other of a peaceful sort in which they bargained over various kinds of changes to the regime. It's an unusual situation. Um, so that's where you get roundtables. So the reason I'm bringing that up, I think, is that it's important to keep in mind in looking at this that if you look at the Arab uprisings, they all fit in one place, that is the protest model, mass level protest. Now, in a moment, I'm going to complicate this to say even they change. Now, one other implication of what I'm saying also is that within each wave, you see change. In other words, the, the, what is diffusing changes. The strategies change as they hit local circumstances. To give you an example, um, in the color revolutions, um, in Slovakia and Croatia, all you needed, all you needed was to win the election and you would get to win power. But when the color revolutions moved to a much more politically difficult, coercive regime, that is to say Serbia, that wasn't enough anymore. It had to change. It had to change in substantial ways. Um, and you see this within each of these waves, this kind of interesting change in how you pull it off. So there's this diversity, this set of variations, but there's also the wave. Okay, um, let, me, um, let me come up, let me focus now on the second issue. Are you okay with that? Maybe, okay, yeah. I, um, I'm presenting a lot of kind of more detailed information than you might want. Um, the second issue is what's driving it. Why does it travel? Why is an uprising or a challenge to authoritarian rulers in one country then move to other countries? It's easy to think it's automatic. It's easy to think this is an easy process. It's not. The norm is not for that to happen. The norm is for isolated protests to just stay in one place, even when they succeed. Um, and so the interesting question is, why do you get these drivers? What, what is actually making that transfer from country to country? Let me mention a couple of other things that are really important in thinking about what a puzzle these drivers are. First of all, countries often, and people who live in countries, often think of themselves as distinctive. So let's say you're sitting in Egypt, you see the events in Tunisia, you say, well, we're not like Tunisia. So why should we emulate what's going on in Tunisia? Um, so there's a kind of nationalist barrier in certain ways, in terms of identity barrier to similar kinds of actions traveling across places. The second reason waves are really puzzling, so you have to ask the question what drives them, is that there is the question of what you can call double diffusion. It's not just that oppositions are learning from what happens next door and thereby want to copy them, so do authoritarian rulers. And they have a lot to lose from these uprisings. As a matter of fact, everything to lose. Um, and so there are lots of ways that these waves could be blocked. Now, in the literature on diffusion, there are basically two drivers. Two things that explain, two mechanisms that explain why change travels. 
Um, one is the very familiar one that we hear about all the time, demonstration effects. All that means essentially is that a precedent is set that increases the likelihood because you find it attractive and that you can do it to copy that precedent. So it's usually a positive precedent that influences others elsewhere to copy it. And that's what demonstration effects. It, it, you know, I, I, okay, put it bluntly, Tunisia. Um, ben Ali fell fast, the Saudis helped, um, and there was very little loss of life. Very attractive precedent. If they can do it, why can't we? Um, and so the authoritarian regime looked vulnerable, and the challenge to it was quite successful. There's another one, uh, there's another driver that's very important, it's called transnational networks. Rather than the idea of a model providing, a, 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 emulating a precedent set somewhere else, there's actually a network of actors who carry the innovation around and who work with local actors to implement it. In the color revolutions, this is exactly what you saw, um, that there was um, a kind of an electoral model that none of the oppositions in the post-communist region had ever really had, a, they never had any experience with it. Um, this idea of massive voter registration and turnout drives, this idea of electoral monitoring, um, this idea of running actual campaigns, this idea, for example, I did a lot of interviews on this, actually leaving the capital cities and trying to campaign outside of the capital cities, quite, quite bizarre kind of notion. So it was a wake-up call for how to run a really sophisticated campaign. Um, and as everybody knows in a democracy, it's not just who votes, it's how you turn out, um, and how many turn out, and how important that is. So the transnational network was composed of, and this was an interesting network, it was composed, first of all, of U.S. democracy promoters, in fact. Um, secondly, it was composed of local oppositions and non-governmental organizations. The third one, to me, is most interesting. As the wave moved to new places, participants in the earlier wave joined. So, for example, Slovaks became very active in Croatia and Serbia. Serbs went to Georgia. Georgians went to Ukraine, etc. Um, and so the network kept expanding of people who culled a great deal of experience from it. Okay, so, so what's really striking if you look again to return to our three waves is that if you look at transnational networks and the idea as well um, of demonstration effects, you find that both of them played out in each of the waves. Um, usually 1989 has been reduced to, for example, demonstration effects, but in fact transnational networks were important as well. The same can be said for the Arab uprisings. There are elements, of, there's evidence of, although far from definitive, it's too early in the way for really good studies to have been done, um, of, of various transnational actors being involved, for example, in bringing together both the Tunisian and the Egyptian opposition years before, in fact, we see uh, the actual wave taking place. But it was different. It varied each wave. In 1989, mainly demonstration effects. I'm guessing in the Arab uprisings, same thing. Colored revolutions, it was much more a situation of um, transnational networks. But here is the key point that I really want to take away from this. There's actually a third driver of the process. 
Um, and this has really been overlooked by a lot of studies. And this was not as clear to me at all until the Arab crisis. And then it kind of put some pieces together for me. That third player is the movement early in the dynamic of change to what I would term a pivotal player. Now, what do I mean by that? If you look at the, each of these waves, what's really striking is that they start in unusual places. They always start in countries and regimes that are not like most of the rest of the countries and regimes in the region. Poland and Hungary were weird compared with the rest of the communist bloc. Um, same thing, Slovakia, Croatia didn't look like the rest of the competitive authoritarian regimes in the, in the Eastern Europe of the former Soviet Union. Um, Tunisia, very different from much of the rest of the region. So the trick is, how does, it, how does that then become the basis of a wave? If you have what you might call a deviant early riser, why would anyone think they should be like them if they really felt they were very different? And so the key issue is that the wave moves early on to a, quote, more typical case. Secondly, it moves to a case where, and this I think is really important for all, all three waves, it moves to a case that really challenges in important kinds of ways the willingness of international actors to tolerate change. Let me give a concrete case. 1989, Poland and Hungary happened, okay, we're done. Suddenly, East Germany blows up. None of us could believe this. I mean, we all were Eastern Europeans. We were working on those cases forever. We couldn't believe it. East Germany. And the Soviets said, okay. We knew they'd say okay to Poland and Hungary. Not a big deal. But East Germany was the front lines of the Cold War. East Germany was the really key case. Once East Germany happened, and the Soviets said okay, we all knew the whole place was gone. The whole, the whole building is going to come apart. Um, so East Germany is a critical shift. Now, the same thing is true of Serbia and the color revolutions. Because this is where suddenly this model is tested, where you have a guy in power who's willing to kill people to stay in power. It's a much more repressive, much more dangerous atmosphere. And it worked. Also, the United States defected from its alliance with Milosevic. It had, had a temporary alliance with Milosevic because of the Dayton Peace Accords. It needed an enforcer, in effect, so that peace in Bosnia could continue. So these were big tests. And then you come to Egypt. Egypt is the big, pivotal case. In my view, without Egypt, I don't think a wave would become a wave. It had to go to Egypt. And Egypt, the big test case, largely the United States. Would the United States tolerate that level of change, that kind of change, in the Egyptian case? So what I'm arguing here is that, and it's interesting because you could think of other, pardon the pun, but you could think of microwaves, um, that never would have gone any further if they didn't move to the pivotal case. Um, and that case, what happens with East Germany, 89, what happens with Serbia 2000, what happens with Egypt in 2011, is that it has the capacity to project 
the way to a much larger part of the region. Now, one reason it did that, quite straightforwardly, and this is true of all three pivotal cases, is they develop amendments to the innovation that make it easier to travel. As, you, as many of you know, after Tunisia, there are a number of self-immolations throughout the region. They didn't go anywhere. They didn't produce the kind of mobilizations that we saw in the case of Tunisia. Um, but what's really, really striking is that when it goes to Egypt, a new and sophisticated repertoire develops. The square model is what it could be called. You focus on the square, Friday prayers, and a variety of other innovations. This immediately pops up in Bahrain. Um, Pearl Square, Pearl Roundabout. Um, you immediately begin to see a similar toolkit for challenging authoritarian groups. Uh, the same thing with Serbia and the color revolutions. When the Serbs invented a whole bunch of new ways of serving opposition, new ways to do things, wow, poof, you know, goes to Georgia, goes to Ukraine, etc. It's transportable, it's applicable. And people in other regimes see it as, see it very much as something they can do and something that's relevant to them. And I think that's the key turning point, is when the wave becomes a wave. Now, let me um, um, say a few, uh, um, make a turn to the final issue. What we've done so far is look at the innovation and we've looked at the drivers. And I'm suggesting here on the drivers, there are really three. Um, that this movement to the Egyptian case and the other cases is critical. But the third issue has to do with the patterns. Um, and, and I think it's, uh, and I think the key issue here is to say that the norm is for most waves to be very uneven. Not everybody joins within a region. We can talk later about why would, why would there be a regional effect on them anyway. Um, but the fact is that neighborhood effects are pretty strong. But not everybody joins. And not everyone succeeds. What is interesting is that we have these three waves, the 89 color revolutions and the Arab uprisings. What's intriguing to me is that 1989 looks very different. Everybody did join. Now, it doesn't mean that the outcomes were the same, and I'm gonna talk about that in a moment. Um, but it does mean that you had anti-regime mobilizations um, in every country in the former, in Eastern Europe and, and throughout the Soviet Union, but not every republic. I don't have time to get into it. You don't want to hear it anyway, endless number of details about the different republics and what happened. It's not too, it's too cluttered. But the point, the point is that in 1989, everybody joined. And I think it's helpful to look at 1989 because it helps us think about what stops everybody from joining too. And I think there were two really, really important variables that made 1989 kind of a, a unique way. And one is that the regimes in the former Soviet Union and Eastern Europe were very similar to each other. If you're interested in, as an opposition, copying something that happens elsewhere, the first place you're going to look are places that you think resemble you because those will be the instructive ones, those will be the ones that have the various kinds of strategies that are relevant in the like. So the first thing is that when Stalin redid the map of Europe, 
he created, in effect, cookie-cutter regimes. Um, I'm a former Yugoslav specialist, and I'll say that's even true to some degree for Yugoslavia, but, but there are details, of course, that are different. Now, that really enhanced diffusion, that really made it easier for precedents set somewhere else in the region to become instructive for the behaviors of people in other regimes in the region. So that's one thing. The second thing is that there was enormous international support for this wave. The U.S. went along with it. Um, um, let me just say, the U.S. didn't always go along with waves in Eastern Europe. It didn't in 1956. Um, so don't, you know, let's not get too carried away with the U.S. always supporting the downfall of communism. Far from it. Um, depended on other security considerations. Um, but also, of course, the Soviets tolerated it. They didn't actively support, but on the other hand, they did in certain ways. Gorbachev was pretty clear when he, when the East German crisis hit, he essentially said, we can't get in the way of history. We can't do it. It's going to happen. That's it. So you had, in 1989, both domestic um, similarities to facilitate the movement of the wave among all the countries. And at the same time, you had, at worst, international acquiescence to the movement and sometimes active international support. That's a really unusual situation. You don't usually see that. In the color revolutions, um, Russia was very committed to what I called earlier today diffusion proofing. That is to say, carrying out policies that provided support for other regimes in the region to stop diffusion of the colored revolutions. Um, and so you have that. And actually, China provided support in that regard as well. Russia and China were joined at the hip in this particular exercise. Um, at the same time, the United States supported some of these and not others. Um, um, I did a bunch of interviews in Azerbaijan, which happens to be a very important ally of the United States because of both oil and the fact that it passes on a lot of information about Iran being next door to it. Um, and when there was an uprising there, an electoral challenge there, the United States just looked the other way. And when you interviewed people who were involved in U.S. decision making at that time, they said, look, Azerbaijan is a friend of the United States. <laughs> Full stop. Um, yes, the leader and the leader's son who's going to take it over are, are far from charming creatures in certain ways, but they're an ally in the United States. So the U.S. was ambivalent. Similarly, the U.S. was ambivalent about a similar kind of thing happened in, in, in Armenia as well. Um, and uh, but Belarus, of course, they support the downfall of, quote, Europe's last dictator. Um, but the point is that the U.S. was a fickle supporter of electoral change and the victory of the opposition in the post-communist world. Sometimes yes, sometimes no. At the same time, the regimes are very different from each other. Um, or different enough to make it harder. And here let me just uh, mention as a side thing, I was talking to Nala this morning, we are having coffee. And thinking about the interesting case um, of looking at the situation of Southeast Asia. Um, because in the Southeast Asian case, on the face of it, you say, wow, you have a lot of diffusion going on there because you start with the Philippines, and then you have Indonesia, and you have these various breaks with authoritarian rule. 
But if you look more closely, none of them resemble each other. They're all really different processes. Um, and one of the reasons I think that happens, getting back to this um, argument, is that there, there are very big <coughs> differences among regimes in Southeast Asia. Uh, much greater than the type of political economic systems that you see, for example, in Eastern Europe under communism. So it's hard for things to move. A precedent gets set, yes, Marcos gets defeated. And that, of course, can generate optimism, but it does not produce a transferable toolkit. Ironically, the toolkit transfers to Chile, then to Nicaragua, then to Bulgaria, and goes to Eastern Europe. Um, it does not go through Southeast Asia. So there's a very different dynamic. Okay, let me, um, let me draw some, uh, a few conclusions here and open it up to, to questions. Um, what I'm trying to argue here is that we could take these three waves and generate certain possibly useful generalizations about why and how waves happen. Um, it seems to me that we discovered first that differences in regime type and levels of repression shape the strategies the challengers to these regimes use. Second, the diffusion in these cases rests upon, I think, three kinds of mechanisms. One is demonstration effects, the second is transnational networks. And as I said, the third one is the entry into the process of a pivotal case in each of these. Third, that similarities in political economic systems and reactions to ways by important international actors affect the regional density of the diffusion process. Um, and the final point, which I didn't have a chance really, and I, I don't want to take time. Your time. Yeah. The final point I wanted to mention, um, just in passing, really has to do with the issue of patterns as well, and I'll just end on that. Um, one of the striking things that I think, it's speaking to people who are interested in the uh, Arab uprisings, is that I think that these two earlier waves have a few interesting implications in terms of their patterns. Um, first of all, I said that 1989, the collapse of communism, everyone participated. Democracy did not result in a majority of cases in the short term. As a matter of fact, the communists did not always lose um, the first election, and they weren't always thrown out of power. So one of the things that's interesting is say, okay, so what do we, what do we think about that? The two interesting implications I'm just going to throw out here from that, from that quite variegated pattern of the actual impact of 1989. First of all, most of the transitions in the communist and post-communist region were multi-stage, not sharp break. Poland and Hungary were sharp break. Most of them were not. Most of them went through multiple stages. I would suggest here, at the risk of perhaps carrying comparison a little too far, that we saw several types of regime transitions in the post-communist region um, that, that might have some relevance to thinking about the future of the Middle East and North Africa. One was the simple one, liberal opposition versus communist. So it was a two-person game, in effect. And the question was, who got the votes? Who had the power? And that shifted over time. 
that had one of two outcomes. The communists won the first election, in which case the transition was much longer, if it happened at all, or the opposition won, in which case the transition was very fast. This is essentially Poland, Hungary, Slovenia, and some other cases. The first set of cases was Russia. Uh, the communist won. Yes, I know Boris Yeltsin was the next communist, but nonetheless, the communist won. Um, so that's one scenario, but there's another one that happened that looks more like um, Croatia, looks more like Georgia, um, and uh, uh, looks uh, possibly like some other cases in the Middle East and North Africa. And that's a three-person game of transition. You have the communists, you have the liberal opposition, and you have the nationals. And these are illiberal nationals. Okay, you can have liberal nationalists, and, and there certainly were plenty of those. All of Poland, for example, is a liberal nationalist. <laughs> um, and, and that supported democracy. But I'm talking about cases in which you have a split in the opposition between the illiberal nationalists and the secular opposition, in effect, the liberal opposition. And that split occurred during communism, and I can talk about that more. It's not a direct equivalent to the Middle East and North Africa. If you say nationalist, that word is misleading, but you can have a three-person game. Um, and what happened in countries like Croatia is that the illiberal nationalists won the first election, and it took a good 10 years before the next stage happened, which is to say this, the, the kind of liberal opposition than one. And that moved Croatia from what had been an authoritarian, post-communist, anti-communist path into a democratic path. But the point was that the transition was a long time in the making um, and went through these various kinds of contortions. Uh, Georgia is very similar to that, but Georgia's really gotten stuck <laughs> in the earlier stage. So I'm bringing this up also because I want to mention something else that is, that is important and brings us back to diffusion. It is typical in both color revolutions and 1989 that the early joiners have the easiest transitions. In other words, the countries that join the way first have the smoothest transitions, in fact, to democracy. Um, and that the ones who join later have the much, much more difficult ones. If you think about it for a moment, it makes perfect sense. Early joiners have ripened oppositions. Early joiners also have more vulnerable regimes. So the very fact that they start the way means they have some raw material for a successful transition. The later in the process, the series. Um, to some degree, the Libyas. The later in the process, the bigger the mess it is. Um, and that's why we have to disentangle, I think, really three issues now in here. Challenging authoritarian rulers, the defeat of a regime, and the creation of a new regime. At each given point, you can challenge authoritarian leaders and lose. If you win, you go to the next stage, which is a regime change, there may not be one. Many people concerned about Egypt today say, yeah, where's the regime change? Um, if you have a regime change, it could be a new authoritarian regime. It does not have to be a democracy. 
So these are all levels of uncertainty in the kind of a decision tree sense once you have these popular challenges. Thank you. Thank you. another variable in all these places that has to be part of the picture, and that is the nature of the elites mm -hmm. and how they behave. And I mean political, economic, and security. Mm -hmm. um, for example, in 1989, I would tend to argue that really it happened even East Germany, or particularly East Germany, because for the first time in its history, Russia had, the Soviet Union, had a leader who was not a killer. Yeah. In other words, if you have an elite that is prepared to kill, um, you might have a different mm -hmm. result. And did the East Germans rise up because Gorbachev had already given the green line a green light. In other words, it's chicken and egg. And mm -hmm. Russia had a very sympathetic, sophisticated mm -hmm. ambassador father. Yeah. But um, Egypt, the army decided to get rid of Mubarak, decided not to support him at the end of the day. I, I'm not minimizing the street, but... Right, right, I understand what you're saying. And Algeria, it ain't gonna happen for the time being, no. partly because there's been so much collusion with the security, Western's collusion building up the security services in the war on terror. Mm -hmm. So it's uh, uh, complicated. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I I think that's right, and I think what you're saying is, 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 is what is underplayed in the presentation, which is this is always a bargaining process. This is always about protesters and regimes. And each set has a set of influences, influences on it. Now, having said that, I, I have to tell you, I was completely uncertain if Gorbachev was going to stick to his not guns, shall we say, um, in East Germany. Um, I mean, I think most of us were, we, we, uh, they can say certain things, these leaders, these reformist leaders, but it doesn't mean they actually stick to it, right? And I, you know, he had the military personnel there to do something. Uh, so, so, so I, I think the tricky thing is that, yes, a leader can decide to use violence, Tiananmen Square in 1989, classic, classic example of that. But I think it also depends upon um, whether that leader can be certain that orders will be followed. Um, commanding people to shoot against their own people is always a risky venture. And um, you know, and you don't know always what's going to happen. I mean, I mean, in, in many of the cases, I, I mean, Lozovich was willing to mow everybody down. He was willing to kill everybody, but they defected. They refused to do it. Similarly, Ceausescu. Ceausescu is a good example, isn't it? Absolutely. Was so it's not just willingness to kill, right? It's, it, it's also uh, politics at the top. It's also the security forces. Now, one of the interesting things that happened when, in, in Tiananmen Square, as I read it, is that, is that the military essentially said, 
to the Chinese leadership. We'll do this, but you owe us a lot. Some leaders don't want to do that. You know, the military did very well, thank you, after 1989. Um, leaders can be scared to pass that on to the military to give those kinds of orders because, by definition, it's giving them a substantial amount of future autonomy and claims on power. So, it's, but you're right, this is, the, this is the tricky question, right? It's not only whether they're willing to kill or not, but it's whether they can get away with it or not. Also, I think Ellen is really underestimating bottom-up politics. Yeah. I mean, this is really, I mean, I think one cannot ignore the fact that you have millions of people who are willing to... Is there too many? Absolutely. Yeah. So, mm -hmm. yeah. If you're going to try and uh, own that uh, top-down, regime-centered uh, institutionalist analysis, you know, rather than try and complement it with uh, the bottom-up, uh, protest-driven analysis. Perhaps one thing to keep in mind is is that for all of these regimes, in, in part, the the kinds of opportunities that you're talking about have to do with succession. Uh, in the case of all of Eastern Europe, we can think of it as the Soviet succession, just as mm -hmm. 56 comes after 53. Each Soviet leader, Gorbachev, following in his footsteps, has to you know, do something new and exciting yeah. uh, during that awkward moment of succession. If you go back to your Southeast Asian accounts, if you look at the Middle East, what really matter, matters is whether the nature and timing of the succession struggle uh -huh. vis -vis this diffusion, you know, really opens the door. It was there in Egypt uh -huh. in spades as it had been there in Tunisia. It seemed like it was getting there in Libya and you know, people thought in Syria that the succession struggle from the old man had had right. such a mess yeah. you know, that, that, and, and, and such plurality within the region. Yeah. But some have argued that it was precisely that plurality of forces, including in terms of coercive forces mm -hmm. in Syria, that's led to such a deadlock. Spent an hour discussing that too. Yeah. <laughs> so I think it's really crucial to have, if you're going to continue along the lines of, of sharpening the, the internal institutional review mm -hmm. analysis, you really have to see succession um, mm -hmm. as the, the crucial opening and whether how, how that's organized and finessed and what yeah. opening you really provides. Yeah, John, my, my, my first book was on succession and, and yeah. <laughs> Hey, no, no it, it's, it's interesting because we were talking about this earlier, but it, 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 it really is fascinating that this is an under, underestimated important issue in 1989. Every single leader in Eastern Europe was either ready to die or was brand new. And uh, the other thing that's interesting, and I don't know if there are comparable analyses everywhere, there's some interesting ones, by the way, of Mexico, that Political protest under communism was always linked to succession. You know, you just really saw a real cycle there. And, and one of the reasons for that is, is that uh, politics at the top loosens, becomes more uncertain, and, you know, they're shopping. Elites are shopping for new alliances as well as reaching out to publics. And, and at least under communism, I was really stuck. Everyone knew how to read the newspapers. They could see that there was some, you know, something going on there that provided more opportunities for expression of concerns. So I, I, I completely agree with you on succession. I mean, I, I, I think it's absolutely critical. So are we going to see a revolution in Saudi Arabia? 
<laughs> you know, you know, it's interesting because I was thinking about that after we talked, because we talked about Saudi, the Saudis today a little bit, and, and the thing that's interesting is that what really stands in the way of Saudi Arabia, I think, uh, joining this way, although you're right, I mean, the succession thing is going to be very big as they move down the next generation, but where's the opposition? I mean, how much opposition development do you have? I don't know. I, I, it's... Tunisia has a history, Egypt has an extraordinarily rich history, Bahrain has a rich history. Um, Saudi Arabia? Can we? Yes? You're, you're nodding your head yes? <laughs> well, one of, the, one of the things that occurred to me, which is another sort of uh, building on John Fidel's point, um, it seems like there's also a political economy aspect to this, mm -hmm. right? So in Saudi Arabia, you have uh, an enormous amount of the population who are implicated in the state through volunteer resources. Whether it's the same thing in Azerbaijan is yeah. an interesting point. So is that a way of um, sort of seeing whether there's maybe another dimension? I know two by two is what we all shoot for. <laughs> You know, have you noticed the model has become much more complicated? Yes. It's no longer as rigorous as, as you presented. More of a, yeah. We, we, always, we always have to. And no, no, no. There, there is a political economic aspect of this, of course. And, and you know, some, some regional hegemons have more money than others to pay off. Um, and, uh, you know, that's a, the simple contrast between the Saudis and the Soviets uh, in, that, in that particular sense. But, but I still... I guess the thing that has struck me about the waves, and and uh, or at least the first two waves, and I'd be curious to know what people think about the the case of the uh, uprisings, the Arab uprisings. I actually, I, I historically was a political economist, but I actually am not particularly taken about the importance of economics in the story. So you asked you might be a question about Saudi Arabia. Yeah. So it is. I mean, the question is really. Is it about bread and butter? Or is it about effective citizenship? It's about uh, dignity. It's about corruption. It's about grievances. It's about minorities. It's. I I think it is actually. But having said that, and this is a uh, Mark Bicycler is doing some interesting work on some public opinion data uh, that he has on both Ukraine during the Orange Revolution and also Egypt um, during the uh, uprisings and the first stage of the uprisings, I should say. Um, people go out on the street for a lot of reasons. And uh, that's where we haven't really done enough hard thinking. Um, we have some very good data on the protests in Moscow uh, around the fraudulent elections in uh, 2011. Um, and uh, basically, what is going on there, right, is that, is that uh, People are out there because they don't think Putin's hardline enough. They're out there because they think he's not a Democrat. They're out there, you name it, they're out there for a number of different reasons. Um, and economics levels the play, levels the motivation of why you're out there too much. It's too crude an instrument uh, for opposition. For that, that is the argument that the reason why really what, what has made the difference or what made the difference in Egypt was the revolt of the poor. That once you had a critical mass of really workers and uh, peasants <coughs> and fellahin and what have you, and uh, you really, the, the nature of the protest movement yeah. itself changed. It's the state, the security. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I mean, Egypt, 
reading the history protests in Egypt, what I've been able to put together, obviously fragmentary information, because I read Arabic, but what's interesting in the Egyptian case is it looks very much like Poland to me. The history of protests in Poland over the course of communism, each year it was some group, but it wasn't all of them. And then, you know, five years later, another group. So you get the students, or you get the workers, you know, or you get, you know, essentially bureaucratic officials, teachers, uh, people who work for the state. Um, then you get peasants. You never get them together, but in solidarity, you got them together. Then you started seeing this much more rich uh, tapestry of individuals involved in, in challenging the regime. And, and that became really, really, really important. And there are arguments about the East German regime this way as well. If you have a question, I'm going to get all of you. But please, shall we take a, let's say, four questions at a time? Yeah, so, that's good. Okay, please. Thank you very much. This is very interesting. Um, I'm just wondering, uh, with regard to the last point you made about um, the early joiners having the smoother transitions or the earlier transitions mm. and the easier transitions, um, in which way does this go together with the, the factors you made earlier regarding um, the, the role of international players? You know, because they will have the opportunity to make up their mind on how to position themselves in the meantime, mm -hmm. as well as uh, sort of lessons learned processes among the opposition. So um, how does that, you know, mm -hmm. sort of fit together? Mm -hmm. okay. Please. Mm -hmm. Yes. Um, Egypt. It seems to me that if you're looking at uh, the history of protests in Egypt, it has a very particular pattern to it, and you can take it right back to just after the, the First World War. Um, but in the middle of that, can I just say, when uh, Sadat goes for Inpitat, um, could you not suggest or argue that this is an opening, a break, with um, the sort of socialist hold that you have? Um, uh -huh. And it's an example, it could be an example, to the East, Eastern Europe. I mean, an early example. I'm just throwing that out. It just crosses uh -huh. my mind. That, that, and that is followed by his need to break the socialist uh, grip on uh -huh. Egypt. Uh -huh. Uh -huh. Now he chooses, he chooses to do this through gathering in uh, the opposition that Nasser has scattered. Right. This is the part of the Islamist. Right, right. And they then follow, if you looking at the ins and outs of what happens in the, the rest of that decade, they are following the practice of the Waft Party mm -hmm. after the First World War and in that period. Almost the same uh, behavior. Mm -hmm. And, well, anyway. Thank you. It's not the point. Oh, sorry. But, but anyway, you, if you if you want to follow that through, you do have examples of that in the bar as well. But I, I can't elaborate on that. Um, first of all, the Romsi argument, I don't know. I mean, Libya was a Romsi state back then too, and then you didn't have protests in Jordan, Morocco, which mm -hmm. are Romsi states. But that's why that turns to my next question, which is, don't you think in the Arab uprising case, institutionally, we need to add another layer, which is monarchies versus republics? Yeah. Monarchies fared much better than republics, whether or not they had oil. And so maybe that's something we need to consider. Mm -hmm. But the whole idea of the, the so-called 
monarch is based, republic is based on monarchy as state. That's, that's so it's, uh, so I think the American political scientists who say monarchs are different than Republican, uh, republic-based states really use the political economy, the frontier state, to say that they have plenty of money, mm -hmm. and that's nothing will happen. But, but we have monarchies that don't. Yeah, that's, uh, please. Hi, sorry, well, I know we've talked about this, but I wanted to tease out a point you brought up earlier. Um, um, it wasn't coming in the presentation, but she mentioned how Tunisian and Egyptian activists had actually both met with the Serbians. And mm -hmm. so it seems that this mm -hmm. kind of like identification of similarity might have happened to some degree. But of course, I don't want to give too much influence as we mentioned the transnational networks mm -hmm. and tease out the local. So it seems like in your presentation, uh, you focus a lot on the drivers of diffusion and the process itself. But I wonder if there's something to be said about the causal mechanism of emulation and how that happens. Because you mentioned earlier, it's interesting how in some cases protests are isolated because hypothetically Egyptians could say we're not actually like Tunisians. You have that barrier of you know mm -hmm. not really identifying. But in this case, there actually was a process of identification. But I wonder, you know, how contingent was that? Is there a role even in our theories of this to really expand upon the social construction and the discursive processes that happen in formulating and interpreting a situation as we're Egyptians, we identify with Tunisians. And so there's kind of a role in your framework for more identity construction. Mm -hmm. You know what I'm saying? So I'm just wondering theoretically if there's been enough written on that or if that really opens the business for new research in that vein. Final question in the first round. Yeah. Okay. Now, if you say that 1989 was successful partly due to Gorbachev's role, would you also say the same is true for the role played by the United States in 2011 regarding um, Libya, Egypt, Yemen? And also, um, minor question is why do you think the Arab Spring, uh, the sorry, <laughs> the Prague Spring was not contagious? Uh -huh. No. Are you check? Yeah, okay. Okay, uh, I'll, I'll start with you. Um, it, it, it's really very, very interesting uh, to talk about the Prague Spring, and, and, and um, this is uh, 1967 through 1968, and, and I know ancient history for, for some of you, um, why it wasn't contagious. I, I, I think there's several different things. There's, the first thing was that um, it was a very idiosyncratic development because of virtually no protests in the Prague Spring. Um, it's been misunderstood a lot. Um, it was not really an uprising, and it really was interesting because it was largely um, defectors within the Communist Party that wanted to introduce reform. Um, but I think that the, the interesting thing about the Soviet response, uh, most people have said, okay, the Soviets responded with the invasion in 68 because they were essentially uh, worried about the party falling apart. Uh, I don't think so. I think they were worried about Ukraine. Um, part of the Prague Spring was about nationalist mobilization in Slovakia. And at the time, not to get too much trivia, but there were two Ukrainian members of the Politburo who were sitting right there. Ukraine is right next door. Ukraine's always been a fragile part of the former Soviet Union. Um, and uh, so the Soviets responded for fear of essentially secession. Uh, they were very worried that Slovak nationalist arguments would slip over into Ukraine. Um, and that would be extremely, extremely dangerous. So I think the, the, the quickness with which the Soviets responded. The second thing is that, um, it's too detailed, but basically 
that was roughly speaking a time in which publics in other countries in Eastern Europe would lose more by protesting than they would gain. It was a time in which things were going pretty well. It was a time in which the terror was over. It was a time in which uh, the economic situation was improving. Um, and that had not seen Czechoslovakia was the first country in the communist region to register an economic mess. <laughs> uh, none of the others were there yet. That took it to the late 70s. The Soviets uh, also, you know, quite, and I don't know how blatant this was, but the Soviets started subsidizing everybody after. Uh, they were really putting a lot of money into the rest of the bloc. Um, and I can imagine, let's say, Hungary saying, um, well, gee, you know, I don't want to have our people, say the Hungarian party leader saying, I don't want to have our people rise up and, and start protesting. I wonder if you could help us a little bit with energy prices. Um, the Soviets say, yeah, because they have everything to lose by the bloc and the railway. So it was a very different kind of bargaining situation. I think the interesting one is actually 1953. Why that spread, despite the fact that the people were getting killed left and right, is they were rising up in both Czechoslovakia and in East Germany. Um, and still it kept spreading. Um, and you know, that's another kind of question but, um, that we could talk about. But I probably should move on. The President of the United States. Um, well, I think that the, the President of the United States does not have the same kind of position you know, within the Middle East and North Africa that the Soviets had in Eastern Europe. I, I, I think it's hard to draw that parallel. Because the Soviets' command and control was in Moscow for most of the region, and that meant that a very different situation. In other words, the, the Communist parties in much of Eastern Europe could not order troops to shoot against their own citizens. The command and control was in Moscow. Um, that is not the same architecture that you find, I think, I think in the U.S. Um, okay, the, the question about Egypt, transnational identity, etc. <laughs> Well, quite, that's quite a big question. Of course, I'm not a, a, a person who is, is extremely proficient, as you know, in, in discourse analysis. Um, but it, it, it seems to me that, in my own view, I, I, she's referring to the fact that when I was doing my interviews in Serbia for my book on, on the color revolutions, um, a whole I, I was trying to interview members of the Serbian resistance movement against Milosevic. And they were all flying in from having done sessions with oppositions uh, together with uh, Tunisia and Egypt. And uh, this was 2005. And I said, it stuck in my mind. You know, I said, Tunisia and Egypt, you know. And they also had been to Zimbabwe and Lebanon. <laughs> Interesting combination. And I, I said, what are you doing in Tunisia and Egypt? She said, oh, we're working with the opposition. And I said, really? And then we went on to do the interview. And for some reason, I was always back there, you know. And then all those years later, I think, whoa. But what was interesting to me, and I've traced it down with a couple of other other people who were involved in this, that you could imagine. Um, my experience under communism was that each country had a very distinct dissident identity and community. And the key question in the fall of communism was the last seven, eight years of communism, those distant communities began to interact with each other. They found ways to do it largely in the West. It was very hard to travel between communist countries or to get out. 
um, they started doing that. And that was extremely important for the way that eventually happened. Um, I think there's a lot to be investigated about the connections between the Tunisian and the Egyptian opposition. Um, and, and the degree to which they were confronting different kinds of regimes, they were in very different situations. But the more they're interacting, the easier you could see that they could influence each other. That there's a buildup of what, I guess for want a better term, they call a common, common culture. Okay, monarchies versus republics. My colleague David Patel has a great paper on this. Um, and he, I owe him an, an enormous amount anyway for helping me work through and try to understand better the Middle East in North Africa. Um, as you know, there's you know, a pretty good correlation. Bahrain is obviously the one that, that, that doesn't work here. And obviously the Saudis begin to tighten up the Gulf Cooperation Council, saying, you know, uh, let monarchies, let's all stick together. Um, and presumably the Saudis are drawing a line between the monarchies and the republics. But David has this really cool argument based on GPS that it's all about squares. And that it's all about, it's all about, and, and this happens to correlate with republics, right? Because I know this from Eastern Europe in 1848. Uh, most of the Eastern European countries have large public squares. <laughs> um, and that really had to do with commemorating, you know, their liberation from the Ottoman, you know, and the Habsburg and blah, blah, blah empires. Um, so anyway, what David argues, um, and he has a new version of the paper that unfortunately he was presenting right while I've been traveling, so I haven't seen it. Um, but what David argues is that if a country has a square, and, it's a, and, and everyone agrees that there is a square, in other words, they're not like ten squares. Everyone agrees there's a, a, a particular square, um, like this last square in, in Prague. Uh, there's, a, there's a particular square, and there are multiple entries to it. You join the way. <laughs> if you don't have that, you don't. And, and the cool thing about this is that it helps you deal with Pearl Roundabout, right? Um, you know, and the big exception, which is Bahrain. Now, now you know, and, and he's actually moving, he's showing me, we've looked at the GPS for Eastern Europe. <laughs> True. Uh, you know, but uh, he's much more skilled, far more skilled than I am at these kinds of things, but it's actually <laughs> absolutely right about Eastern Europe. Um, every single country, and by God, every single republic in the form of Yugoslavia has one of these squares. Uh, anyway, so it's, it's, normally there are many other arguments you might make, right, about why monarchies versus republics and blah, 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 but, but it's just interesting. But do you divide, do you divide, do you, do you divide the divide between monarchies and republics? Uh, I, I think the square argument's more compelling. <laughs> <laughs> I think it's a really good <coughs> argument. You know, the whole point of the square thing um, is that the whole problem with protest is the obstacles to collective action and how hard it is. And in authoritarian regimes, the hardest thing is that you can't know what other people really believe uh, because it's dangerous to share your true preferences. So. Collective action is hard in democratic regimes because you can say, well, let someone else do it, or whatever, whatever. But in authoritarian regimes, you're guessing, and it's risky behavior. And so there's a lot of great literature in East Germany, and the way a few people started protesting on the square, and people kind of walked by and go, hmm, and then suddenly they kept mushrooming. Um, and so there's, there's, a, there's a history here of squares as ways for people to gather important information in order to engage in protests. Mm -hmm. uh, 
Any other questions? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, both names of that. Wow. Yeah, I mean, I mean, there are a lot of very. Um, you, you can even go further than this and getting back to the political economy argument and say it's interesting that um, some of the earlier protests in Egypt, um, in response to, so I think they're called the bread riots. What are they called? Yeah. Right are occurring right when you have exactly the same phenomenon in communist Poland. Um, and, and so there is a kind of a notion of a regime for political economic reasons, you're right. The Sadat reorganizes the alliances, he does all these things, and there are also these political economic issues. But I, and, and I, also, but I take to be the point that you made that was most interesting for me, which I think is really important, is that there are national protest repertoires. You know, that's absolutely right. Um, and everyone indigenizes these innovations that come from other places. Um, with the Egyptians being the, the, the most dramatic example of that. And I think that's right. So I think that's really important. Okay. Yeah, good yeah. question. Early and international players. Um, it, it was the assumption, as I remember your question, so the assumption would be that, that um, the early ones are more successful because they have more international support. Is that the kind of implication of what you're no, Okay. Sorry, that was building on your last point when you said that you feel that the earlier um, a country joins, the greater the likelihood that it will be a successful uh -huh. So basically, um, based on that, I'm just wondering how does this fit together with the idea that, you know, you said um, revolutions do depend on on international success or do depend on opposition platforms. Uh -huh. So, you know, basically one could argue that the later um, the country develops all these protests or what have you, the more time the opposition has or the more time the international community has to form support. Uh-huh, 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 so yeah, yeah. Not a contradiction, I'm just wondering, you know, how, how does that go together? Right, right. Well, I think the issue is that there, there are three sets of things going on. One, the later, the more the opposition learns. And, and secondly, the more the regime learns. And thirdly, the more information that the international community collects. And, and one of the things that I don't know if this is true about, about the case of the, uh, of the experiment. I'll tell you, it's certainly true for the color revolutions. The later ones were the most superficial. You know, um, you look at, you know, they're sitting in Kyrgyzstan, they go, no, 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 we're ticked off about this, so let's pretend that we're Ukraine. And they just do a really, frankly, half-assed job of what they're doing, but Akaya goes, oh my god, they're protesting, and he runs off to Uzbekistan. Uh, rather prematurely, I might say. Uh, I mean, he could have stayed in power, I think. But, but so, so, so what happens in an odd way is that the opposition does a more superficial challenge to the regime in a lot of ways. I mean, that, that's kind of the way I see it, that they want the results, but they don't want to do the work. Um, and they just think they can cut corners. And, and pull this off because look at all these precedents before them, and so that that's kind of how I how I see the later ones. Is that get it? Yeah. yeah. Okay. Two more questions, please. Um, oh. So, so you, I didn't see a report. Yeah. Um, 
I'm, uh, I'm, I'm one, I've been sitting here having a, uh, thinking about another comparator, and you've just, you just brought it up in answering one of your previous questions. Um, and it seems to me it raises important issues about how, how can you tell whether this is going to work, whether you're going to get some lasting legacy. And that, that is, that's the 1848. Yeah. Um, where a lot of the things that you're kind of looking for for a wave happen. You had mass diffusion, far, you know, far, yeah. even faster than average spring diffusion. You had mass success. Uh, lots of people joined, yeah, well, actually, maybe not so many people joined in, but lots of states joined. Yeah. And there was very little legacy for a very long time. It's not even necessarily your 10 years that you were talking about with, with the Russian succession, but in some country, you know, 50, 100 right. years until you had a you know, decent change. Um, and I, I'm, my concern is perhaps that by choosing two sets of waves which are related, um, mm -hmm. that you may, you, you may pick up some trends that you can't necessarily export to something which, although connected, has, you know, is, is, is different in the Arab Spring, and that maybe you, you need to cast your net a bit wider to test all the waves. Although she, she made it very clear, she's not interested in the outcomes. Uh, of, of the protests, you were trying to understand. But you, but you weren't were talking about this. Uh, um, this was the last point you made about what happens afterwards. Right, you right, have two right. players or three yeah. players. Yeah. Right. Right. Please come yeah. um, Thank you for your presentation. It uh, brings me back to uh, the principle or Nigerian magnet principle of the relationship between strategies and outcome. And I found this relationship is not. It's irrelevant to politics. Mm -hmm. uh, you mentioned the uh, anti-regime uh, uh, or anti-authoritarian regime strategy or protest as strategy, um, but I, I believe that this strategy, visible strategy of ordinary people, poor people uh, against the authoritarian regime in, in the Arab uprising case is turned into a resource. <coughs> Uh, for invisible strategies led by internal and external uh, forces. And I find the anti-protest uh, is, is a precondition for the invisible strategies led by the international community in particular to lead to a certain outcome. So my point that it's not the visible strategy uh, used by people uh, who suffer from the oppressive regimes that leads to, the, to, to a certain outcome. And I think this dynamics of, of strategies uh, is what makes the Arab uprisings, and maybe the same in East Europe, um, uh, not leading to a sharp break, as, as you described, uh -huh. or not leading to sustainable democrat democratic transformation. So uh -huh. I don't think how we have five minutes. Okay, uh, I love the question of 1848. A lot of people are talking about about 1848, and also my great great grandfather was an important player in 1848. He was thrown in jail in Germany and 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 came to the United States uh, because he could either stay in jail or come to the United States. So <laughs> I had a lineage to 1848. Um, I I. I have found, always found 1848 to be completely puzzling. And, and, and partly, I, I don't feel I have a good handle on it because it is one of those very odd situations in which you write. The number of countries that join is astonishing. It's astonishing. And I can't for the life of me figure out how you could have had that big a wave. Um, with that level of communication. And how made the squares yet? Yeah, 
Yeah, it, it, it's, it's, it's bizarre. Um, and so, I, I, I mean, I, I would like to, there are actually some people who are working on Arab Spring, but be, because it is a demonstration effect kind of thing. On the other hand, there are some very interesting arguments about 1848 about transnational networks, essentially transnational revolutionary networks um, that the French have <laughs> uh, with in certain ways. Um, but until, I, I, I'd like to say more, but um, it, 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 it is striking. And, uh, and I think that um, an interesting comparison would be the role of Russia as a gendarme of, of the, you know, the um, Metternichian system um, and, and compare that with Saudi Arabia and compare that with the Soviets before uh, and to look much more at those regional hegemons and, 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 and what they did. Um, could be argued that, that you, what you basically had was a much more competitive order in, in 1848 than you had otherwise in the other cases. Uh, that is the same between France and the rest. Um, and that opened up the possibility of a much bigger wave. I mean, that's how I think international relations people would, 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 would look at it. Okay, what leads to outcomes? Lots of stuff leads to, lots of stuff leads to outcomes, you're right. I mean, I mean it, it, it has to do with oppositions, it has to do with regimes, it has to do with international players. Um, but I guess what I was trying to say, if I could just end on this, is that um, outcome is a moving target in these things. You know, just as democracy is not an outcome, it's a process. It's a process for the mediation of conflict. Um, if you'd ask me what the outcome was in, um, in Serbia, you know, in 1991, 92, versus 2000, versus 2005, my answer would keep changing, right? Um, and I think there's some nice clean cases where it's over with, but outcomes are much more complex. I expect, with Egypt, and we were talking about this earlier today, we both are very optimistic about Egypt, and I'm optimistic about Egypt because it reminds me of Bulgaria. Um, and the ways in which uh, people wouldn't let the regime get away with stuff. Uh, and they stayed in the streets, they kept pressing it, and eventually the regime gave in, and eventually you had a credible opposition, and eventually you had a transition to democracy. But the regime was going to resist it all the way. Um, but it was also a relatively peaceful process, but it took 10 years. And on this hopeful note, please join me in thanking <laughs>